0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP
1: Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit USIP.org and check us out on social media.
0: This will be a lively interaction. We'll have some we'll have the presentation of the report, um, opportunity to, to explore further with the authors. Um, So, and speaking of the authors, um, first among them is Ambassador Frank Wisner, right here. I was telling Frank that I just uh, spent about two hours in the Frank Wisner meeting room, right upstairs uh, on the fifth floor. We think of you every day, Ambassador, and it's great to have you here. International Affairs Advisor, Squire, Patton, and Boggs, former U.S. Ambassador to Zambia, Egypt, the Philippines, and India. Uh, Ambassador Cameron Munter, uh, who you'll you'll see in a minute, CEO and President of the East-West Institute. Uh, former ambassador to Serbia, uh, of relevance here, and Pakistan, even greater, greater challenge, uh, it was Cameron. Uh, Jonathan Levitsky, partner, Du Plimpton, and former counselor to Ambassador Richard Holbrooke. Um, so there, there we are. Uh, and Tom Graham. Um, we're very pleased to have Tom in this context. He's been working with us on some of our Ukraine-Russia work. Um, Tom is the senior fellow and managing director at Kissinger Associates. Um, Ambassador Sarah Mendelson has also been working with us on uh, Ukraine and Russia and other kinds of things. She is the Distinguished Service Professor of Public Policy and head of Carnegie Mellon's Heinz College in Washington, D.C. Did I get that right? Very good. Um, also a former U.S. Representative to Economic and Social Council at the United Nations. So Ambassador Mendelson, we are very pleased that you can be here to, to uh, moderate uh, this panel. Um, before we get to the panel, uh, let me ask uh, Grace Kennan Warnicki, the, the, who is the board chair of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy, to come forward. Um, Grace reminded me that her father, whom we all know, uh, George Kennan, um, was longer in the Balkans than he was in Moscow. Um, so this makes us particularly relevant here, and we are very pleased to be able to have this opportunity to welcome you, Grace. Uh, here, can you you want to say a little bit about the national committee, and then uh, then uh, Sarah will welcome all the panelists up to the so, so, please welcome Grace. Warren.
2: Hello, can you hear me? Well, thank you all for being with us this afternoon for the launch of such a timely and important book on US policy in the Western Balkans. I'd like to begin by extending great thanks to Stephen Heintz and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, whose guidance and generous support made this center possible. Um, I w- I will just say a few words about the National Committee. The National Committee was founded 43 years ago by Hans Morgenthau with the aim of, of promoting a more realistic American foreign policy. As you know, we have not quite arrived, so we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, it's, an, it's been a small and niche organization that is amazingly effective. We played a big role in the Irish peace process. And we um, currently, for the last 20 years, have been doing a lot of Track 2 work in Southeast Asia, which you will never read about because it's under the, it's under the, <laughs> under the screen, under the radar. But it's, it's really interesting. We are also privileged to be invited to work alongside with its esteemed colleagues and partners throughout the writing process of this um, project. And I would like to commend Ambassador Wisner, Cameron Munter, Tom Graham, and John Levitsky for all their hard work and dedication. I'd also like to recognize Stephen Whitaker and Mark Standick for all the hard work in forming this report and making today's event possible. The Western Balkans has been a challenging region for US policymakers for decades and you have all done an amazing job of presenting clear and succinct set of recommendations. We are very excited to be going to hear about them. And I would especially like to thank this afternoon our hosts, the U.S. Institute of Peace, for their support in helping to pull together today's event in such a seamless fashion. Now I'm pleased to turn the um, the program over to our moderator, Ambassador, and she will invite the panelists to to them.
1: Thank you for being with us. Uh, on this warm close, as I would say, my grandmother would say, Friday afternoon. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to read the report, I, I urge you to, to do so. There, there are a lot of R words in the report, and this is it's really about reengaging, reimagining, re-energizing and refocusing our attention on the Western Balkans. So please keep that in mind as, We go through the panel and we turn to you for uh, question and answer. We're going to travel in different directions uh, in this discussion. We're going to start with transatlantic integration, which has played a big role. We're going to talk a little bit about Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Serbia, and Montenegro. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, external power and the role that exogenous forces are playing in the Western (coughs) Balkans. Uh, so, we'll then turn to you all for questions. So, please be thinking about what those questions are. Um, but for now, let's, let's go right to the panel. Uh, so, in terms of transatlantic integration, we have to ask how reliable do you think, and what is your metric exactly of what we might think of as the pull factor of possible membership in the European Union at a time when member states, such as Hungary, are challenging EU standards when key member states such as Germany and France are facing mounting political pressures to pause or even stop the enlargement process. So if we're thinking about enlargement as a poll, how do we balance that with the realities of today? Who wants to go first?
3: Why don't I, why don't I lead off, uh, Sarah, and let me do so by thanking you for being willing to take on this panel, and my colleagues for joining me. We've been hard at work for the better part of a year in coming to the conclusions. All of us are veterans one way or another of American diplomacy in the Balkans, and what we're trying to present to you today is the distillation of not only our experience, but intensive consultations inside the region, and with diplomatic representatives of the region, of Europe, of our own government in coming to the conclusions that we've reached today. So that, in a way, to say uh, we come to you because we were and came together to do this report because we were deeply concerned. Concerned that the situation in the region called for action called for engagement by the United States, called for re-engagement. And why? Because for a long-standing set of reasons, the United States has core interests. In the Balkans, Western Balkans, we've been heavily involved diplomatically, militarily, and (coughs) all through the 90s, and then through much of this, the first decade of this century. We are compelled as well by the, not only our interests as a country, but by the situation which has changed, as we see it, in a manner that is profoundly unhelpful on several grounds. Inside of Balkan nations, governance has deteriorated. Between communities in the Western Balkans, between ethnicities and religious groups, and even between nationalities, we've seen intensifying trouble. While not reaching the level that it reached in the past, that brought us into literally warfare in the former Yugoslavia, the trend lines have all moved in the wrong direction, egged on in part by new factors. Three in particular, the entry in a very uh, (coughs) spoilers role by Russia, by the Chinese who, while they've not yet set a clear political course, have decided to make the Balkans one of the endpoints in one belt, one road, and are positioned to be serious players without paying any heed at all to the standards of European and Western alliance uh, principles, principles of transparency, principles of how you do business, principles of how you conduct contracts. So all of these factors are new and hearken our attention. As we looked at it furthermore, we face the fact that <coughs> this year is a year of particular significance. It is a year this month when the EU is going to meet in Sofia and the Balkans is on the agenda of how the EU confronts and deals with the questions. So this year is important to the EU as a whole. It's important In several other regards, there will be a NATO summit this fall. And again, the Balkans is a matter of interest. Third, (coughs) the three C's gathering that Trump attended, President Trump attended in Poland, will again meet this year in Bucharest. And here again, the Balkans is a key, key player. So timing, there is a moment in history when people pay renewed attention to a situation in the Western Balkans invites that attention. The report that we've put before you and hearken to your attention is a report that's based on a key assumption. And that assumption is that the way to deal with the situation in the Western Balkans is known to all of us. It is the gradual integration of the region accelerated integration of the region into the EU on the one hand and into NATO on the other. That if those safe harbors can be energized and brought to the region in a more rapid and consequential manner, then there is an outcome that can stabilize the region and stop the, sh- stop the downward spiral that gives us every reason to be concerned. We're not talking nor arguing that the region is ready for full membership in any of, some of the countries are, some are already there, but the, what we are trying to argue for is a credible, achievable path that is clear to the people of the Balkans across the board that they are on their way to membership in the transatlantic institutions. And that path, we argue, is not yet visible and the report calls for attention to making it be just so. Let me end with a note about the United States. It is our view that the situation is ripe for American re-engagement, but re-engagement of a special sort. The United States always was a secondary, though interested, player in the Balkans. This matter continues to be primarily Europe's, concern. The Balkans is part of Europe. It's indivisible from it. A Europe free and whole is a Europe that must include the Balkans. Europe has the resources and the institutions to cope in the long run with the multiple questions the Balkans faces. But the United States has the unique privilege of being able to serve once again as a catalyst, not at the front of the line, but part of achieving a solution. And that means a political decision on our part that the Balkans is important and that we need to be engaged with the Europeans to reach the objectives that we need to reach. And I'd like to think, and I believe I reflect the opinions of my colleagues, that this role, catalytic role for American foreign policy has lessons well beyond the Balkans to a much broader base of engagements the United States is part of in today's world. Having said that, Sarah, you posed uh, a couple of very tough questions. and There are more I coming. I, uh, <laughs> and there are more coming, I, I know. Um, I think it's a, a, only a reasonable question to say, um, it's all good and well to paint a dramatic picture of what's needed what the institutions are, what's going on in the Balkans, but are we all ready for this? Uh, is the United States prepared to shift its attention beyond a single trip by, by Vice President Pence and pay attention? Is Europe, with its multiple distractions from Catalonia to Brexit to Eastern Europe to quarrels between Poland and Hungary and the rest of the European Union, is Europe ready? And the answer to that is Yes and no. Uh, Yes, um, we have now ample evidence before all of us that the European Union has given specific instructions to its staff functions to accelerate. a, A study of how Europe can engage the Balkans. The summits that are coming up all engage Europe. But is Europe still ambivalent? It is ambivalent. And so we tried very carefully in the course of our report to think about issues that could engage Europe and yet not push Europeans beyond a comfort zone that they can work inside of. We've proposed interim steps. NATO we know. PFP is an interim step on the way to NATO. But in terms of the European Union, a credible, achievable path means there are many ways the Balkan nations who are not part of European institutions today and who aspire at some point to be there can begin to dial into the European system. And you will see those ideas. They run quite a wide range. I won't choose to bore you with them at the moment. But I think we tried to take into account the distractions of Europe and put our fingers instead on ways this job can be done, tough as it is, given the fact that the year is a good one in which to engage. Sarah.
1: Perfect. If uh, others have pressing issues they want to bring up, otherwise I'm going to turn to Bosnia.
4: Um, let me just uh, emphasize what the point that Frank made is that let's not forget we're not an analytical group that is trying to dissect the uh, internal workings of, uh, of, the, of the region. We count on the experts with whom we spoke and with the discussions to set that as a backdrop. It is mainly intended to be a means by which American policymakers across the board can see where they can engage to support their European fellows. But I hope that though we can steer the tenor of what we're trying to do is not to relitigate those elements that many of us have lived through in p- recent decades, but to find out where, in a policy sense, we can move ahead. So I hope that you will also work in that spirit. That we're not going to argue about what happened in, ni- in nineteen ninety-three. We're not going to rehash those things, but to look forward. So thank you for that.
5: Sure, I'm. I'm. I'm happy to. Although I think Sir was about to turn to Bosnia that I was, gonna, <laughs> which I was going to talk about. But it's fine. It's all. Uh, so. Uh, just to m- maybe jump a- ahead a little bit and also focus on the question that you started with, Ambassador, uh, concerning the pull factor in Europe, if you sort of take a step back and you look at the region and you sort of say, why why are we concerned about it? Why have things become challenging there? It's really uh, two factors. Uh, the first is is one that we, we haven't uh, – uh, that Ambassador Wisner spoke, spoke about briefly, and that is simply that, to some significant extent, American diplomatic attention uh, has uh, drifted away from the region. That's appropriate. It started, I think, sort of after 9/11, and rolled forward, you know, pretty consistently uh, uh, from that time. And and there's no way that that uh, we could reasonably expect or that it would be appropriate for the United States to engage at the level that it was engaging in the region in the late 90s. At least we hope it never is necessary again. But part of our goal here is to is to suggest that a relatively small incremental engagement above and beyond where we are now really could have a very significant impact in avoiding. A more grave problem down the line that requires a more significant uh, engagement by uh, American policymakers. But the second factor, uh, and and it's the one that you opened with, Ambassador, is is the pull. You know the whole framework that the the United States and Europe built around the Balkans, starting in the late 90s and and rolling forward in order to maintain peace and stability of the region. Once we got through the Dayton Peace Accords in Bosnia. Uh, the, the sort of Rambouillet 1244 saga in Kosovo, it was all built around the attraction of Europe. The notion was that the, that the, the end point for, uh, for Kosovo, for Bosnia and for the other states in the region was, uh, was fundamentally to be a part of Europe. And you know, as Ambassador Wisner correctly pointed out and as your question suggests, uh, people in the region I think have come to question whether that carrot is real or, uh, or whether they'll ever get to eat it even <laughs> if they think it's real. Uh, and, and so, as Ambassador Wisner said, one of the most important things that we are recommending uh, is that our colleagues in the European Union think awfully hard about ways they can uh, both make that care real uh, and also uh, motivate uh, interim steps, uh, motivate the parties through interim steps that go beyond just the sense that there's this immense bureaucratic slog of files that have to be closed before you get anything at all.
6: Yeah, let me just add one uh, other point here. I mean, the focus uh, for this group has been on sort of re-engagement at this point, and re-engagement because of the understanding that the United States and Europe are not properly uh, engaged, they don't have a high-level presence, that that vacuum is filled by other powers. Uh, and what we've seen over the past I would, decade uh, is other actors moving in in, in, a, in a significant way. The Russians in particular we will talk a little bit more about that, uh, the Chinese, uh, some of our allies get involved in ways that are not uh, uh, conducive to what we like to see as the better governance, uh, a turn towards more democratic governance in the Balkans, Turkey I'm thinking of. And of course we have the problem of uh, violent extremists moving into, uh, into the region uh, from time to time. Uh, a much higher profile engagement by, uh, by the West in general. Is an important element in pushing back against this, giving the people of the region uh, the understanding and a hope that there is an alternative, uh, that the West cares, uh, that there's another way uh, to move forward that is going to bring greater security, greater secure, uh, stability, and greater prosperity to the region over the long run.
1: So now the questions are going to get really tough. Um, so the report does two things particularly well, I think. Number one, it points to three factors generally in the Western Balkans that are driving problems. Number one, this issue of governance, and we're gonna return to that. Ethnic tensions and external forces, outside forces. In the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which it places primary importance on, and I agree with that as well, um, it has very specific, immediate, important recommendations having to do with uh, the election law, and this is appropriate because they're approaching elections in the fall. Um, but I want to ask the panelists a tougher issue, which is there are other internal issues that are driving uh, problems inside Bosnia, including massive unemployment, um, high levels of corruption, um, and yes, what we might think of as the unresolved present past, historical legacy. Until those things are really addressed, it's it's difficult to think of a way forward, and I want to press the panelists on specific things that the US as well as the, the European Union might do to address these these very tough issues. Election laws, we have a lot of experience uh, in advocating around the world on these issues, but if we might do a little bit on this, um, maybe starting in the middle um, with, sure. the, yeah, <laughs> um, and going I, uh, around.
5: The, the, uh, my, my affiliation with the late Ambassador Holbrook means that I seem to be the, <laughs> the go-to person yes. for all things possible. So, uh, uh, a, a couple of thoughts. First, just to say a, a couple words about the election law, recognizing that it is to some extent the crisis du jour, and it's very easy in the Balkans to get yourself swept up in those and not focus on the longer term. So your question, Ambassador, is perfectly appropriate. But just to sort of fill out for the group uh, uh, that that issue, it, it's sort of a question that in some ways might sound very esoteric. It's almost like a sort of a, a dispute about electoral redistricting, but fundamentally. Uh, it is a, a dispute between the uh, the Bosnians and the Croats, and the in the, in one of the two entities, constituent entities of Bosnia Herzegovina, the Federation, uh, as to how uh, 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 representatives ought to be elected to the House of Peoples, which is the upper house of their Federation. And it turns out, and there was a court decision, sort of holding last year that the current electoral law uh, is improper. Uh, and it turns out that. If you don't have that electoral law, then you can't elect the House of Peoples. And if you can't elect the House of Peoples, then you can't have a government in the Federation. If you can't have a government in the Federation and you don't have a House of Peoples, then you probably can't put people in the up in the House of Peoples at the national level in Bosnia. And so it's this sort of tiering effect. Uh, and furthermore, as Ambassador Wisner was pointing out, uh, if, you don't have a, uh, uh, if you don't have a government uh, uh, in the Federation, then come March uh, you won't have a budget and you won't be able to pay anybody. Uh, and so it's a real sort of serious crisis point. Uh, we we, su- we suggest in the report that uh, this is an issue of sufficiently grave importance that if the parties really cannot come to agreement ultimately, it's one of those rare circumstances under which we think it would be appropriate for the High Rep to exercise its bond power uh, and impose a solution on the parties of one variety or another. But we're hopeful it doesn't come to that, and uh, we know that our. That, that, that folks uh, both in the United States and in Europe are actively working with the parties in an effort to resolve that situation in a timely way. Um, but to take a step back and talk about the, the sort of the, 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 the situation on the ground more generally. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit complicated because it's a chicken and an egg. It's, there's actually, you know, there's a technical word that we lawyers use for yes. this, it's a big mess. <laughs> so, uh, 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 so how do you undo that mess? Um, uh, there's no simple answer. Uh, but there are uh, uh, a bunch of uh, small-bore steps that can and we think uh, uh, must be taken to, to help. On the economic side, it's really fundamentally, uh, uh, you know, my, my sort of current life is in the private sector. I, I, uh, I've done that for quite some time now. And, and you know, looking as a sort of person who represents private equity investors and strategics who might invest in various markets in the world, you wouldn't look at Bosnia and sort of say that's an easy place to go <laughs> invest. Uh, and why is that? It's you know it's very it's very high on the transparency international corruption index. Uh, there's uh, serious difficulties with regard to the rule of law and the enforceability of court judgments. It's just a tough place to invest. And so, um, uh, you know, fixing the the problems of governance in Bosnia are the way you fix the economic problems. Because otherwise, although their economy has been growing at about two and a half percent a year for the last five years, it's really driven by remittances. It's not indigenous economic activity. Um, so. You know, one of the things we propose in the report is that within the Dayton framework, uh, we urge, we push the parties both in the United States and Europe as a part of the EU accession process to streamline their governmental institutions and to work very hard on these issues that are limiting uh, foreign direct investment. So that's a complicated answer to a complicated problem, and it's not one that will deliver a near-term solution, but it's the, uh, I think it's the path forward.
3: Sarah, let me uh, just add a quick thought on what what John has just said, and wrestle with you for a moment. Um, we thought long and hard about the challenge you laid before us. Bosnia is a mess, but is it a mess that American policy can address directly? What are the pieces we can address that would make a difference? And I think we reached a conclusion that you have to create a framework of stability before there can be reasonable economics. Bosnia will then and thereafter, and for years, have worked to do to sort out its economic system, its complex political structures, many things. But it needs to get started. And the election law is really important. There are other ways that NATO can be involved. We've in- recommended one in terms of dealing with NATO property. We've also recommended modest ways the United States can be directly involved, an enterprise fund, which two senators have launched on Capitol Hill. But the core point I want to leave is, if you don't get a framework of stability in place, nothing else will happen. And we believe, in the long run, the issues of governance of rule of law, of economics are going to end up being issues that will play out over the years and will end up being primarily European issues with an American supporting role.
1: I think in part my question is uh, an excuse to elevate the work that AID and colleagues have been doing on the ground for a long time. Um, as taxpayers, um, we support a mission there. I, th- I think I see, is that Gretchen And the, um, we're joined by the Deputy Assistant Administrator from USAID for Europe and Eurasia, who oversees <laughs> this area. So just to know that there is good work that is going on tackling corruption and historical uh, memory and, um, uh, and unemployment. Let's turn to Kosovo for a moment. Um, this is a very, the report frames uh, the grand bargain proposal that's been floated by Serbia's President Vucic that may include territorial exchange as a quote, an idea whose time has not yet come. Um, it feels like a Pandora's box that's being opened anytime you talk about territorial exchange as a possibility yeah. in the Balkans. And I, I, want, I wanted to hear a little bit more about what the report, right, the writers of the report were thinking about when they were discussing um, this issue of territorial exchange?
3: Uh, The issue is not one we raised. The issue was put on the table by the facts on the ground and even more importantly by the Serbian president. So we had no choice but to address it. In addressing it, we looked at it very carefully and it was immediately obvious to us that this idea of territorial exchanges is an idea whose time has not come. And I don't suspect it's going to come anytime soon. Er, There are all the issues we know only too well of precedent for the rest of the region, opposition inside of Kosovo, unclear objectives on the part of those who mention it. You can make a long laundry list, but I think we addressed it in order to say move on and deal with what you can deal with. And that is the framework of direct dialogue between Pristina and Belgrade, sponsored and supported by the European Union, nudged forward by the United States. And there, there are real issues that need to be addressed, Uh, issues between Kosovo and Serbia that have to come to a head, for example, The community of Serb, the Association of Serbian Communities, remains mired in a dispute on the Kosovar side, but really the Serbs as well have no particular interest in seeing it resolved except in a manner that would be divisive for Kosovo. That needs to be settled. There are many other issues that have to be drawn between the two countries to keep them on the road to some modus vivendi, in which they will take the poison of this dispute out of it and uh, and make both of them members in time of the European Union. And I think we come down very hard that on the issue that you should not allow any member of the European Union, any new member, to have veto power over the future membership. And that Kosovo Serbia will not be able to block Kosovo's entry. I know that's the German Chancellor's view, and most Europeans, it's one I think all of us agree to wholeheartedly.
4: And if I can add, I'm I'm struck by what you said about USAID and other people. We don't mean to imply that many of these kinds of discussions are not going on. That is to say, we're inventing these things, or coming up with these ideas. The idea that there is a dialogue about the association of Serbian communities, that's going on. And that's something that we like to think that in good faith, uh, Mr. Vučić, Mr. Thaci, other interlocutors have, have actually addressed. There are a number of economic issues, which the new uh, prime minister in Serbia, Bernabic, has 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 put forward uh, that don't get a lot of attention, but that set the stage for healthier economic relations across the border between Serbia and, and uh, Kosovo. It's a long process of confidence building that I think we're talking about, What we're calling about is not to say, let's invent this. What we're saying is, let's make sure that those on the outside who care about peace in the region, the United States, work closely with our European friends to foster that kind of dialogue. And when the time comes that the trust has been built, not only between leaders, but social trust, people studying at each other's universities, people engaged in cross-border trade, people who have various cultural uh, uh, events that take place across the border. That's when we're going to come to a time when we hope both sides come to an agreement that we not only can support, but that over the time, up till that time, that we've been able to shape.
1: So staying with uh, the Serbian theme and returning a little bit more to uh, the pull factor of the EU, Um, And moving us into a conversation about the role that certain powers play on others. Um, What is your sense about um, the EU requesting or putting pressure on Serbia to play a more constructive role in Bosnia? Um, And what does that look like? What is an inducement?
4: It's very vague. So far, what we have seen is that the EU is calling for personal links, that is personal efforts as far as I see them, that uh, Mr. Vucic and Mr. Dodik could take, uh, almost as an assumption that one uh, person could let an- make another person uh, act a certain way. I think that's th- the right way to look at this, rather, is to look at the institutions, those questions, those issues that Jonathan raised earlier within Bosnia that will allow for a constructive role for the leadership of all the communities in Bosnia, rather than looking for something uh, that you would say uh, an outside party should somehow control or steer. Obviously, we're looking for a, a, uh, a positive role by, by Serbia in, uh, in, in Bosnia, and certainly to the uh, Republika Srpska, a, a positive uh, impact. But I think it's much more important to focus that question on the internal development in Bosnia. And I would think that when uh, the European Union uh, looks at, at these questions, it's looking at governments, governance and domestic issues that's most important.
1: So uh, s- the report has a very intriguing recommendation uh, for the US, the EU, and Russia uh, to essentially enter a dialogue to reassure Russia that NATO membership, should it come about, does not affect Russian interests. So I wanted to know, curious minds want to know, who might be involved in that dialogue? How receptive do we think the Kremlin actually is to that dialogue? What tools does the EU and the US have to reduce Russian disruption in the Western Balkans? Uh, And here, I want to tag on the question of Montenegro. What do you do to completely prevent Russia from playing an even more uh, disruptive role in Montenegro? Th- to my mind, even raising awareness or shining a light on the disruption is one tactic. Um, perhaps to be more methodically explored, but it's a tactic. It's not actually a strategy. I don't. Th- I think people at these at this moment are thinking a lot about Russian interference in various elections, uh, but they're not necessarily paying that much attention to. Uh, the Western Balkans. So I'm going to turn first to Tom for this.
6: Can I say great question? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, the question du jour, I think, in, in Washington. Uh, let me take a step back. Um, you mentioned the Montenegro uh, events of, uh, of October 2016, which I think is a, an extreme example and a very clumsy uh, uh, example of what the Russians have been doing in the Balkans over the past over the past several years, but as I said, emblematic of a broader approach. Uh, the problem, the fundamental problem that we have uh, with the Russians is not so much that they're proposing a different set of solutions uh, to the problems of the Balkans, it's that uh, they don't really want solutions, <laughs> uh, that they, they're they uncomfortable with the, the, the types of proposal we're making, uh, and the policy has been focused on creating problems and obst- obstacles are moving forward. Uh, so we see it uh, with Kosovo. Uh, uh, you nurture a close relationship with the Serbs, uh, but you back them, uh, make sure that, um, uh, that you will support them uh, on their non-recognition of Kosovo. Uh, you see it in the support that they give for, uh, to Dodic and Bosnia Herzegovina as an effort to undermine a resolution of these very difficult issues. Uh, we've been talking about it. Uh, you see it in the way they play both sides of the name yeah. issue in Macedonia uh, because they don't want a resolution of, of, that, uh, of that issue. Uh, but the second point that I would make in this regard uh, is that the Western Balkans is really not a priority for the Russians. Uh, it's a low-cost effort, uh, I would argue, to create a, a chit in a larger bargaining process uh, with the United States uh, in particular. Uh, What the Russians are concerned about is their situation, their position in Ukraine, uh, the Middle East. Uh, If they can engage us uh, in a broader negotiation uh, about those issues, uh, then the Balkans become something that we can talk about. Now, how does the United States deal with this? Uh, I think we deal with both aspects of the problem. Uh, one is that we move forward on what we think are the appropriate solutions uh, to the region, things that we've been talking about the way Ambassador uh, Wisner laid it out in the, f- uh, in the beginning. Uh, that achievable, credible path towards uh, EU membership, NATO membership, uh, is a way of pushing back uh, against what the, uh, what the Russians are doing. Uh, and as we've seen in, in Montenegro, you can make that happen uh, despite Russian. Uh, resistance. So we uh, envision that for a broader process uh, in the region. Uh, second, uh, the Russians, uh, in part of this effort of creating friction, uh, spend a lot of time on disinformation, the uh, various sort of media efforts uh, that we've seen uh, elsewhere in Europe uh, and in the United States. Uh, so we need to respond to that. Uh, we need to help build up the independent media mm-hmm. uh, in the Western Balkans. Uh, we need to uh, be able to buy to provide credible uh, news uh, in a sense to, to push back and undermine uh, the, the false narratives uh, that are being presented. Uh, we need to work with the, the various countries of the regions in cybersecurity. Uh, that's obviously easier to do with countries like Montenegro that are now part of NATO, uh, where you can have a, uh, a more intensive discussion, where you can do the types of intelligence sharing you need. Uh, but there are ways that you can do this with the other countries uh, of the region as well. But the second part of this uh, is is that larger uh, negotiation. One of the reasons we talked about uh, having a a, a dialogue. Uh, The EU obviously has to be part of this. Uh, It doesn't have to be the EU uh, out of Brussels necessarily. Uh, It can be in a sense, the way we've, uh, we've approached the Ukraine crisis to take some of the big powers that are really interested in the region, Germany first of all, uh, to be engaged in a dialogue with the Russians uh, and the United States uh, about the future of the Balkans, trying to understand what Russian concerns are. Uh, but you're gonna have to deal with that, as I said, in the broader context of the overall relationship. Uh, you can't sit right. down and have a fruitful discussion with the Russians simply about the Western Balkans. <laughs> right? Uh, it's got to be in the context of how we're going to manage the overall relationship. Uh, and if we move towards some semblance of a framework for that, then I think you can resolve the localized problems of the of the Balkans.
1: I think placing it in the context of the larger Russian foreign policy around disruption I think is really important. Um, and understanding it against the backdrop of Ukraine and, and the MENA region, I would very much hope <coughs> that U.S. policymakers understand, though, the security implications of this disinformation and how dangerous this is. Um, I think a lot of times people think, "Oh, yes," and we'll work on independent media as if it's some kind of add-on, when the world that we live in, the kind of uh, the use of social media, regular media, to to stir up a lot of ethnic divide in this particular part of the world is extremely dangerous and needs to be understand, understood as a larger security issue. Yeah,
6: just make one point on this because this always comes up and I think it's we have to uh, stress it. I mean, the Russians don't make life easier <laughs> but they haven't created the problems. They exacerbate right. the problems. Uh, and the resolution of this is not simply pushing back against what the Russians are doing. This is why we're talking right. about uh, the broader issues, uh, the indigenous problems that have to be addressed. Uh, if you can address those, uh, you give less room for the type of mischief that the Russians want to do.
1: Uh, agree. I mean, this is why the present past is, is an issue that needs to be addressed. Staying with the external power. So China uh, is moving assertively in this region as we see in many other parts of the world um, where it can lend money more quickly with fewer conditions to support large and important Uh, infrastructure projects that people on the ground want to see happen. Uh, Its labor laws, as I think you were noting, and environmental standards are not in accordance uh, with the EU rules and regulations. So how do we handle this discrepancy? Um, And should or could – this is a provocative question – should the Chinese model cause the EU and the United States to change how it supports development? And specifically, are we going to face pressure to be more, let's say, flexible in our assistance as a response? Um, how does this square in this region with reducing corruption?
4: I'll make an initial uh, an initial stab at that, and then maybe I think Frank has some things to add. I think there are two ways to think of the Belt and Road Initiative, and let's not forget the Belt and Road Initiative and the impact that it's going to have in the Western Balkans is just a small part of an extraordinary Uh, process that's going to be going on throughout Central Asia, throughout the maritime area of Southeast Asia. In other words, the Belt and Road Initiative is going to come, and the question is only what are we going to do about it with it, right? So to say that we are resisting, it's kind of a parallel to what Tom is saying. Uh, You don't just counter, say, Russian ideas in the region. You deal with what's at, at stake there. What's at stake? is. The kind of infrastructure that the Belt and Road Initiative offers is welcome, there's no doubt. They need it there. There are two ways to deal with this, in my mind. One is to come up with alternatives, whether they are enterprise funds, whether they are projects in the private sector, whether there are consortia of people working in different areas, public-private partnerships, that come up with an alternative that emphasize not only the quality of the infrastructure that's being built but the rules by which that infrastructure is being built, fair labor, sanctity of contract, rule of law, and to make that compete with what we might see as the Belt and Road Initiative. Secondly, the other part is, we need to think hard whether we can participate. It's not gonna go, it's, it's gonna happen anyway. Is there a way in which Westerners can take part in the kind of investment the Chinese are, are putting forth and perhaps shape the conditions under which that kind of uh, infrastructure is going to be built, because it's going to be built. It's not a question that you can replace the Belt and Road Initiative. You can compete with it, and perhaps you can shape it. So those are the two ways of thinking. Are we able, are we interested, we and our European allies and other friends, and not only Europeans, what about the Japanese? What about other investors? Is there a way that we can compete? And again, is there a way we can participate that would at least make sure that the kinds of governance issues that would emanate from the Belt and Road work would have an impact?
3: Uh, I I think you've covered the main points. And just let me add a, a couple of quick reflections. Because Sarah, I think it's a problem that is now just beginning to emerge. And it is going to be more and more important in the years ahead. Um, it, I must say it, it grew in importance in our own deliberations the more we thought about it. Uh, and why? Because I think this country is finally coming to a belated recognition that the Chinese do have some grand national strategies involved. They are in the process of developing an economic system that is matched with political interests that begin in Beijing and will end in Western Europe. That will link China and Chinese markets to Western markets. And the Balkans is really the first landfall in Europe. So when the Chinese put together a billion euro fund uh, for the Balkans, uh, it's real money. Uh, It's real money particularly because the Balkans has a crying need for infrastructure. It is a desperately short short commodity in the Balkans. Any of you who've ridden on roads in the Balkans recognize how, how, how desperate it is. And are the Chinese there? Of course they are. Look at what we're looking at right now. Look at the Piraeus port, roads in Macedonia, roads in, in uh, Serbia, deals that are currently being made. So that's the problem. And with it comes, not yet, but tomorrow, another model, another political set of interests in the Balkans, and the only way we can really get on top of this is to be certain that the Balkans are part of Europe. Now here comes the challenge, and Cameron put his finger on it. Uh, One you have to be able to mobilize some alternative resources and I'd like to think European infrastructure funds don't have to wait until the EU has developed a full membership quota before those infrastructure funds can be mobilized. I also don't believe that it is only Europe's job or that it's only a job for the public sector. Public-private partnerships in mobilizing capital and it's more capital than just Europe and the United States is Japan with interests in this region. The question is a challenge to American leadership and European leadership to put together serious infrastructure development funds and at the same time make it clear to our friends in the Balkans that if you want to be part of an integrated European economy in which your people are able to circulate and work, your products will be bought, Europe will be help you manage your financial systems. All of these come with a price. You have to play by the rules. And the rules are not corrupt project development, lack of transparency, lack of environmental standards. Uh, There's a cost to being part of a richer reward. And here, um, Balkans have a few lessons to learn that there isn't just a free Chinese contract to sign if their ambitions in the long run or to be part of Europe.
6: About this, and I haven't passed this by my, my <laughs> colleagues, so uh, they, they'll totally disagree with us. Just a footnote on this. Uh, the Chinese are also interested in security and stability. Yep. Uh, that's how you're going to mm. develop markets over the long run. Mm. That is not exactly what the Russians are doing at this point. Uh, so One of the reasons that you engage the Chinese in this, one, it is going to happen. Uh, Two, it would be a positive development uh, for the region if it's done properly. Uh, three, it gives it an added a bit of, uh, of leverage in managing the Russian problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so we're now coming to you. Um, do we have we have microphones? Yes. Um, please, if you could, um, when you ask your question, um, state your name, where you're from, and go at it. And if you want to identify a particular participant. Uh, please please do. We're going to start there and then we're going to go over here. Let's, let's collect a couple and then we'll do another thank round.
7: Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador. Edward Joseph, Johns Hopkins Sice. I worked for about a dozen years in the region, including as uh, Deputy Head of the OSC Mission Kosovo. Mm-hmm. And I want to salute the authors of this report. I think this is an excellent report. I think it's remarkable in a short report how many of the key issues you touched upon. And I was particularly pleased to see the emphasis on nato and just to mention hans benedek hans benedek and i had a piece urging a new nato uh, initiative for the balkans at the summit so i was very pleased to uh, to see that to see you all emphasize that in the re- in this excellent report <coughs> my question has to do with serbia and kosovo and the way i read the report and hear the discussion here today you put a lot of emphasis on europe Uh, You talk about the need to continue the EU-led dialogue when it's clearly at an impasse. You talk about the need for uh, the condition, absolutely, that uh, Serbia must recognize Kosovo as a condition for it to enter the EU and not obstruct, Uh, when, of course, as we all know, five EU states themselves do not recognize Kosovo. And then, third, you make the point, again, quite correctly, Uh, insisting that uh, Serbia has to commit decisively to the EU. Again, well said. But in all of these cases, we see very clear obstacles. So my question is, here as we're all gathered at the US Institute of Peace with the State Department across the street, you really want to put so much of this on Europe? What about Washington's role? Let me give you an opportunity here to amplify, maybe precise, a little bit more, giving some of these inherent contradictions and complications for Europe to resolve this critical question, so thank you so much.
1: Okay, we're going to take uh, one or two more, right,
2: right here in the front. Sure. My name is Marcy Reese. I've been ambassador to Bulgaria and Albania and head of mission in Kosovo. Uh, I have a complimentary question to yours, which is, Uh, You've you've got a pretty heavy menu here for the Europeans. Uh, I I gather you talk to a lot of people. How much of an appetite is there for taking this on? We've already had this big discussion about enlargement, no enlargement. So where does this fit into all that?
1: Actually, it's such a great pairing. Let's let's go back to the panel, and then we'll take um, some more.
3: Well, uh, let me put a couple of thoughts out and then turn to my colleagues and have them pick up. I, um, it's, it's quite interesting, the two, two questions. Uh, what really can the United States do and should it do, and uh, how to look at that question on the one hand and on the other. Uh, what are the Europeans? What's the real European attitude, if I could put the two of them together? Um, the heart of this report is that there is a role for the United States, because it's important we get involved, re involved, refocused, re energized on the question of the Balkans, because we have real interests at stake. And we try to define those interests as clearly as we can. Now, what does that actually mean practically? It means number one, and the most important, is right at the top of the United States government the President of the United States, his senior cabinet, have to say the Balkans matters. And that's on our agenda with Europe. And we need to form a common cause to take advantage of this promising year and put our respective collective shoulders to the wheel. It starts there. It's a political decision. It's not just needling Europeans at second echelons of the United States government. It's a genuine political commitment. The burden of the two, however, will fall obviously more on Europe. After all, these nations will end up being one way or the other part of a European Union, but they'll also be part of NATO. So the burden falls on us, particularly to focus on the security aspect. How do you expand NATO? And I'm pleased to hear that you're considering Uh, fresh ways to think about accelerating NATO's involvement. PFP has been, has made its contribution in the past. We have troops on the ground in Kosovo. We believe that NATO can do more uh, to entice, bring along our uh, Balkan colleagues. NATO can, for example, also take on a a more determined responsibility for the creation of a small self-defense force in Kosovo. As unhappy as that news may fall in Belgrade, it only makes sense that we put ourselves firmly behind that objective. Now, uh, that's what the United States can, should, must, in our judgment, do. But it is a catalytic role, finally, to look at all foreign policy issues the United States faces around the world is where is the American leadership position? is not where I believe this country ought to be headed. And I don't think any of the members of this panel believe that. Here's a really good case where the careful deployment of American influence, some resources, can make a big difference if we start with a political commitment at the top. So let me pause there. I don't underestimate the difficulties of moving this country, nor do I underestimate, Marcy, the problems on the European front. But I can tell you it is fascinating talking with Europeans today. They are completely ambivalent. They will list the difficulties and they will acknowledge the demand. And we are seeing it not only in the Commission, but in the statements of individuals in governments. The question is, how do you bring those two together? And here, I think, sparking a discussion across the Atlantic is one way that you try to bridge the gap between what is a recognition of reality and a reluctance to actually have to deal with it. Cameron, you wanted to add.
4: Yeah, I mean, behind that fundamental goal of what we're doing is the recognition that we don't go into in depth here that just because we're saying America needs to talk to Europe doesn't mean that the only place we talk is in multilateral fora, that is, yes, it's important to go to the EU summit, yes, it's important to go to the NATO summit, but we'll also should be thinking realistically about which countries really care or have the capacity to do things. Of course, America should deal, when it's talking to Germany, about to talk about what they have in common in which, how does leadership of America and Germany play a role? If, for example, uh, the Brits have something else on their mind these days, It may be that what we remember in the past about a leading role for the British might be less. That is, it's not just an amorphous America and an amorphous Europe. There's going to be specific decisions, but those won't happen unless the leadership that Frank talks about takes place. Similarly, I think that there can be a leadership role for business. We talked about you know, the role in the development of the uh, you know, uh, infrastructure. It doesn't stop there. I think that business, even nonprofits, even the U.S. Institute of Peace or the East West Institute, God knows, there's, there's a role to be played in the dialogue. But that role is not likely to go anywhere unless there is that kind of political commitment that then gets the leadership of those countries to look for solutions and to actually just you know get the blood circulating a little more.
6: Sure, happy 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 to say
5: a few words. So, uh, just in in response to Ambassador Reese's good question about the European Union's appetite for uh, addressing these kinds of issues, you know this is a tricky one. I, I think you know part of what we're trying to do in this report, and and I think we're not alone in this, is to make an observation, which our European colleagues are beginning to make as well, which is that. You know, there's this tendency to mistake stasis for stability. And, you know, particularly in Bosnia, you know, uh, Tom Miller and I, who's in the audience, was our ambassador in Sarajevo for for a number of years when I was in the government as well. And in some ways the situation is static. It doesn't actually look that different from when Tom and I were serving in government uh, and and dealing with the Bosnia issue. But the fact that it's been static for all those years doesn't mean it's stable, and in fact, in some ways, it's getting a lot less uh, uh, stable. And that's folks quite rightly focusing the mind. And this report is a part of an effort to encourage people to, to do that, to catalyze that, to encourage our European colleagues who've come off a, you know, a, a tough road uh, in terms of their internal dynamics to think hard about what more they can do, as well as encourage our own government at a senior leadership level to participate actively in, in re-energizing that, uh, that engagement.